amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Rachel Pagonis, and I'm your host for this episode. Today, I'm speaking with Sarah Lamb about successful aging as a contemporary obsession, global perspectives, for which she's editor as well as a contributor, published by Rutgers University Press in 2017. Sarah Lamb is Professor of Anthropology and Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies, and Barbara Mandel, Professor of Humanistic Social Sciences at Brandeis University. She's the author of White Saris and Sweet Mangoes, Aging, Gender, and Body in North India, and most recently, Being Single in India, Stories of Gender, Exclusion, and Possibility, which you can also find more about on the New Books Network. Uh, So Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm really excited to have you here. And would you begin by telling us a bit about your background and how you came to the topic of successful aging? Sure, yes. Well, I'm a cultural anthropologist. And for years, I uh, focused on India. I still do research there. And I um, especially was focusing on the ways people in India, especially West Bengal, India, think about and experience aging related to things like gender, families, the body, um, their ideas of what makes a good old age, how uh, aging relates to notions about dying and afterlife. And um, although I lived and taught in the U.S., I hadn't really focused on the U.S. in my research. But uh, as I uh, started thinking, you know, looking around my own society, um, I I started seeing how actually ideas about aging in the United States and North America are also extremely fascinating. And um, one of the ideologies about aging that started becoming very prevalent in our North American society especially starting around 1990 and and after, were notions about healthy aging, successful aging, both as a gerontological topic, but also as a popular cultural phenomenon and public health phenomenon, the idea that people should take control of their own aging to make it as positive, healthy as possible. Um, and I, I just started thinking, okay, the, this North American aging business is really fascinating to study as well. Uh, so I, I still go to do research in India, but I have been doing a lot of research recently with older Americans from a diversity of backgrounds um, in the Boston area, San Francisco area, and recently in, in the southern United States, in Arkansas and neighboring states, um, and and just exploring their ideas about what it is to age well, while also scrutinizing the 
massive amounts of public discourse, public health discourse, medical discourse about um, this idea of successful aging. Uh, and gosh, there's so much fascinating there. And I guess you've been doing some really interesting comparative research. And I'm just thinking about when Medicare was first introduced in 1965 and how the idea of aging was so different at that time. Mm-hmm. That's right. So um, the notion of this idea labeled successful aging first began to be labeled in, in around 1960, in the 60s um, by some gerontologists, psychologists, and then doctors. Um, and uh, when Medicare was first developed, in, you know, until around the mid-1960s, often aging was considered to be largely out of the control of the individual and uh, genetically based and just an inevitable part of the human life course and uh, kind of more widely accepted in our society that people would become frail. There was a popular psychological notion of disengagement that people naturally become disengaged from the world around them as they get older and, and more kind of negative ideas that this is going to be a sort of a bad declining phase of life. Um, and the successful aging ideology turned those notions on their head um, and began to become really popular by around the 1990s. Um, John Rowe and Robert Kahn were the, the two scholars who published their landmark book in 1998 called Successful Aging. And then other gerontologists started taking up the concept. Uh, so much work um, trying to get uh, emphasize the notion that aging can be a really happy, positive, meaningful phase of life uh, that individuals can control um, and that, you know, biology isn't destiny. You can make your own aging healthy, positive, active if if you wish and you try hard enough. And I guess that went along, along with demographic changes and a greater aging population, but also advances in medicine where people are living health more healthily longer. Absolutely. Yes. Right. So nations around the world, this, uh, the one book that we're talking about um, brings in scholars who focus on aging in other uh, nations around the world, as well as some focusing on North America. And demographic aging has been taking place globally in almost all nations. And so I have found and my colleagues have found that more and more societies are actually concerned about how to manage aging as a problem, really. Because if it's not true that all older people will need care, but many of them do. And if old age does involve frailty, then societies have to figure out how they're going to care for them, whether the state has plans for that, whether families can do it, whether individuals can do it themselves. And the successful, healthy aging ideology emphasizes that individual efforts is the key way to take care of yourself. I mean, at the same time, if there's old men, if, if older people are increasingly larger part of the population than maybe culturally, it seems, there's more attention in, in public discourse, movies, et cetera, books being published on, on what aging is. And so I do think that, that the, these demographic shifts are one key region, reason that successful aging has taken over as a public ideology in many nations over recent decades. Huh. With that emphasis on the individual, I mean, the U.S. is not the most socialist kind of system, but it seems like just the complete opposite of, I mean, I have I wasn't aware of it at the time, but I've seen um, 
videos and, and movies and things of Lyndon B. Johnson and talking about how, you know, it was the state had the idea of Medicare was the state had to care for the, the indigent and the aging. And, they, you know, they showed all these pictures of, of very indigent, you know, very unwell, poor, older people, frail in beds. And, you know, it's just the complete opposite of that. Yes, you're right. And and um, exactly. And so there still are indigent people, frail people who need care uh, in North America and all societies. Um, but the successful aging notion kind of turns away from that and says, you know, individuals can take care of themselves. And, and actually, I, I forgot to address your question also about medicine. Medical advances um, have been quite significant related to aging and longevity. Um, and we have more and more ways to counter diseases, you know, cure cancers, combat heart disease. So people around the world and most nations are living longer in general. And this can seem very exciting. Um, I think in North America, there's a lot of public concern now about whether some of the medical interventions go too far. And, you know, people I speak with are concerned sometimes about being hooked up to too many life-saving machines and life-prolonging machines. Um, In a way, successful, healthy aging envisions living as long as possible. I mean, there's people doing research on, you know, can we expand the lifespan to 150 years? Um, And some individuals are excited about this, but many people I speak to are saying, well, you know, is that too much medical intervention? Some people will say, you know, I, you know, I'd rather die. I'd rather die than live too long or, uh, you know, kill me first. Uh, so it's something that we're uh, debating, I, I think, as a society and around the world. How much medical intervention is it's like success, you know, progress, and how much maybe is too much? Yeah. So before we go on, I just want to have a brief definition. Um, the term successful aging to me always seems to imply a, a great possibility for failure. So what do we mean by successful aging? Right. Wonderful question. So it means different things to different people, of course. Um, the mainstream gerontological public health type of definition that has um, taken hold um, in scholarship and in public self-help books, um, emphasizes the key premise really is that individuals are responsible for their own aging self, kind of the self as project. And that through diet, healthy diets, exercise, the right attitude, positive attitude, and productive social activities, you can make your aging very vibrant and healthy, um, this idea that, yeah, you have succeeded as an individual to achieve something positive and uh, that biology isn't destiny. Um, But you're absolutely right. The idea of success implies failure. So while the successful aging notion can be very inspiring to many people, and I have discovered that through doing fieldwork with actual people who are like proud of their successful aging, it can be very inspiring. And I'm sure as I get older and older, I'll try to practice, I'll read about the tips and I'll try to do them myself. Um, It does imply that then once you do become frail, you can fail at aging. And I think that is a damaging notion. It makes, it tends to make many individuals feel embarrassed about 
their own frailty, if they do feel that they're becoming so-called old, you know, ashamed about that. Um, some people, let's say, who would benefit from using a cane because it would help them be more mobile even and active and be able to go out and do more things and prevent falls. Um, very embarrassed to use a cane in, in the United States, most people, at first at least. And they'll, you know, I'll ask them why or their doctor will ask them why and they'll say, oh, it makes me look old, it makes me feel old, can't use a cane. And so that that flip side of embarrassment, shame, the sense of failure that you did become frail or like so-called old, um, you know, is the flip side of the positive vision of successful aging. And it, it, it's kind of unrealistic. Like I, I think it would be better for us all to accept more the diversity um, of experience and bodily condition over the life course. And um, if we're lucky to live long enough, we will become old. And maybe we shouldn't be ashamed even to say the term old. Uh, so, um, yeah, so these are some of the, 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 the things I and my colleagues probe, uh, sort of the underside, the damaging elements of the successful aging ideology. Mm. And, of course, the book is, is kind of a critique of the idea of a successful aging, the title, which calls it a contemporary obsession, certainly implies that we in the U.S. may be over-enthusiastic or uncritically enthusiastic um, in adopting the language and values of successful aging that you've described. And one of the critiques in the book, and this is from Tony Calasanti and Neil King, is that successful aging provides a kind of a scaffolding for ageism to begin with, it assumes that old age is worse than any other age and looking or acting old is something to be avoided. And when I was reading their chapter, I was struck by this statement. As people age, they are asked to demonstrate that they are not old and they do so by approximating what is taken to be middle age behavior and appearances. And it made me wonder if this is also true of doctors when they administer tests of physical and mental norms. Uh, as well as society in terms of appearance and performance. So I'm wondering, um, Sarah, do you think that we have medical standards such as ideal testosterone levels or ideal estrogen levels that also in effect deny aging? Yeah, such a really interesting question. And I love that piece, that chapter by Tony Colasanti and Neil King uh, that points out how successful aging ideologies are at their root, uh, kind of ageist. Um, even though they meant to combat ageism and say that aging can be positive. But if the idea is that if you really do become old, you fail, that, that's a very ageist notion that becomes quite internalized. A lot of people have internalized ageism because of absorbing these um, public, popular medical ideologies. And so, yeah, to what extent do our, uh, does our medical system and doctors promote such ideas? I'd say to a certain extent, Yes, and maybe even uh, more previously. So, for instance, about estrogen levels, it used to be very, very common in North America, unusually common in the world scheme of things, to provide hormone replacement therapy to women as they're going through menopause and even after indefinitely. This idea that the normal healthy woman would have certain levels of estrogen, and when her body doesn't keep producing it naturally, that we should prescribe it to them. Um, and this was quite uniquely North American, the extent to which hormone replacement therapy was practiced. 
But then research studies showed that that wasn't safe, even medically and and, and not necessary. Um, So we've moved beyond that to some extent. Uh, There are still some physicians and some individual men who want to take testosterone to keep up their testosterone levels. Um, there's a lot of emphasis in, in North America also on maintaining your sexuality at the same level um, and activity and performance as, as when you were younger. And so, for instance, Viagra is very popular here and, um, and not popular in the same way around the world. One of the chapters in the book focuses on attitudes about Viagra in Mexico. Um, and in Mexico, there's much more of an idea that the body changes as one gets older. And so naturally, one's sexuality would change too. And more men, um, whereas earlier in the life, Mexican men tend to often associate um, successful, successful sexuality as penetrative, having good erections, um, they, there's a common ideology in Mexico that the body changes as you get older and that sex and, and intimacy can become more um, diverse, involve more hugging, cuddling, doesn't always have to involve penetrative sex, and more of acceptance of change in the body. So I would say in North America, both in popular culture and through medicine, there is a, tend to be a tendency that the good body, the good, healthy person, um, as they age, stays the same as much as possible. It's something that I've labeled permanent personhood as an ideology in some of my writings and in um, part of uh, a few passages in this book, this idea, yes, that you, if you're going to be a healthy ager and a successful person, you you maintain yourself of adulthood uh, indefinitely um, through your lifestyle and through medical intervention, if possible. Yeah. When well, isn't that part of, you know, remaining middle age? I don't know. I don't know. It wants to remain middle age forever, but, um, but, but part of it, because rather than changing over time, as you do from a child to young, a young adult to middle aged person, then you stop there and you stay the same. Right. And, you know, we expect people to change earlier and um, then we, all of a sudden we say, oh, no, don't change too much now. The ideal in some of these visions, successful aging visions, is that you would stay the same as possible until suddenly you would drop dead. There's no one who's saying we wouldn't die, but people don't like the decline, the idea of decline before death. So if you could sort of keep your vibrant self and then all of a sudden have a heart attack in bed and just die before having declined, that is uh, many people's idea of the ideal and part of that also is related to a lot of discomfort that North Americans have about um, being dependent or a burden. There seems to be a lot of fear that if I decline, this will be embarrassing and shameful. And how will I get my care? And I don't want to be a burden. So that that's wrapped up in it also. Um, but I do think it would be healthier for us as a society and for many individuals to be able to think more about the reality that uh, there are phases of life where your body performs differently. Maybe your mind performs differently. We're not embarrassed. Children are are not embarrassed to receive care from their parents or if they need help. And, and, and it's not true that in all societies, people find it super embarrassing to be an older person needing help also. So if we could begin to think about the realities of aging more honestly um, 
and in a more accepting way, going beyond the idea that one must be this sort of successful, permanent adult person. I, I think that could be um, healthy and comforting for many people. Hmm. So another critique of successful aging that you certainly touched on is that it comes from a, a neoliberal context of self-help and self-determination. And the aging is something the individual not only can, as you said, do, but also has a responsibility to control through lifestyle choices and behaviors. But this seems to consumerize the whole idea of aging. So is successful aging something that you need wealth or relative wealth anyway to buy into? That's a very important question to consider. And I do think partly my answer is yes. Um, A lot of the successful aging popular ideology, there's so many self-help books on the topic on amazon.com, big bestsellers, then magazine stories, public health messaging. Um, It often does imply or state explicitly uh, that you should go out and buy these things to help you or you, you should pay for a big trip and go cycling in Europe. You should go skydiving. You should eat all these organic vegetables that you buy at your nice you know, suburban grocery store. Join the gym. You have time to go to the gym. So a lot of the messaging and, and, and suggestions for how to be healthy really do imply this, this kind of well-to-do person who has time on their hands, who has financial resources and can go about and buy these things and do these things to be healthy. And I have found through my research that um, many people realize this, many of the privileged people who are enjoying all of these successful, active, healthy aging activities realize that their money helps them do it. I've talked to people who are struggling socioeconomically and, and many of them also realize that their socioeconomic conditions makes it harder to practice these healthy aging ideals. These days, most all people in North America are aware of what they so-called should be doing. So the public health messaging is very strong. You know, eat more fruits and vegetables, avoid, you know, sugar, avoid fast foods. But some of the older people I've been doing research with who, let's say, live in subsidized housing, um, subsidized by the state who are low income, um, tell me like, oh, I don't live near a grocery store where I can buy vegetables. Plus, I can't afford dental care. So I've lost my teeth. So I actually can't chew vegetables as well. And so I have to eat junk food. And I don't ha- I can't afford good medical care also to take care of my body. Um, and I have to keep working at all these jobs and some of the jobs are sedentary and so I don't have time for exercise. So a lot of people are aware of how socioeconomic uh, disparities can really impact health as they age. And uh, so I do think that importantly, many of the successful aging ideologies are grounded in consumerism and uh, this uh, ideology of neoliberal uh, self-determination. Um But I wouldn't say, I don't like to say that it's all because of consumerism, because we have, let's say, capitalism and an anti-aging industry of face creams. That's the whole thing behind successful aging ideologies. I think it's an important part, um, but it's it's not the whole thing. I guess I, I do think that broad cultural ideas about personhood and fear of aging 
the desire to live healthy forever, maybe uncertainty about what happens after death, all of these things play a role as well. Yeah. So several chapters in the book describe how other cultures approach aging differently, uh, which is really interesting. And one theme that echoed across a few different cultures was the theme of desired interdependence. That's what Janet McIntosh calls it in her chapter on being old in Kenya. So what makes desired interdependence a desirable response to aging? Yes, well, um, most anthropologists don't want, and same with me, don't want to sort of say there's one good way to do anything in the world. Um, But if one does have a a concept of desired independence, if this is a prevalent notion in um, a particular social or cultural setting, it would make many dimensions of aging easier. So it is true that many anthropologists, including some who write chapters for this book, and what I find in India also is that um, there is much less emphasis on individual independence as a, as a really central ideal throughout the life course. And so people will talk about um, the life courses involving some periods where you need more care, some periods where you give more care, and that this is a normal part of the human life course and the human condition. And so um, children need more care. There's the adult phase of life where you can make money and give care. And then when you get older, it's natural that you need more care again. And so a more accepting, I think, of the realities of what it is to be human and the biological changes that happen over the life course. So less humiliation about being old. It's not it's not like there's any society that solves all the problems, you know. Um, but I do think that it, it would be healthier in North America if there were a little more of a sense of that interdependence can be okay. And one thing that I find that's really interesting in, in some of my recent interviews with older North Americans is that many of them cared for their own parents quite intimately. For some of them, it was hard and a burden, Um and difficult to juggle while they were also maybe caring for children. But most people do tell me that it was also meaningful for them. I mean, there's many people who describe that they became more intimate with their parents or a mom or a dad during this period, that it meant a lot to them. And um, it, it was a source of intimacy. And But yet, almost everyone I've talked to who's North American doesn't want their children to do this for them. They feel like that would be a burden, embarrassing, inappropriate. And so I'm not sure what the answer is, but if they thought that it was kind of a privilege to be able to care for an elder, uh, you know, possibly we should start thinking that it's okay for our kids to do some of this care for ourselves also. Um, but I'm, I'm not sure. I myself don't want to think of my kids, you know, changing my diaper or something or, you know, interfering with their own precious lives to spend time caring for me. I don't want it either. I, I, I'm also very independent. So it's it's hard to say what the answers are. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 had, I was just going to ask you that, you know, did those people who were caring for their parents uh, actually want to be cared for? But it, it makes me think of a I don't know if you remember this article by Ezekiel Emanuel in The Atlantic a few years ago, in which he wrote that when he was, you know, the medical ethicist, he wrote that when he's 75, that's going to be it for him because 
and at this time, I think he was maybe 57 when he wrote the article. And, uh, but he was saying, well, I, and one of his reasons was I want to go out when my children still see me as this vibrant doing it all person. I don't want them to remember me as some frail aging person. And at the time I read it and my own father had recently died, I think, or was dying. And that was one of the most meaningful times for me personally with my father. And I thought, I am so glad that he didn't go out when he was younger, more vibrant, and our relationship was not that great. Mm -hmm. So, Right. I remember that piece. It was a really provocative piece. Yeah, it was. And same thing, though, with my mom. We were not always close when there were many years. It's not like we had a falling out, but we were not always that close. She was fiercely independent and I was fairly independent and living across the country. And we got closer when she was very, very frail and needed care. And especially my older sister, who did even more of the care, got really close to her. And it was a kind of a precious time. So... um, yeah, it's not easy questions. I do think that the reason many of us don't like the idea of our parent kids kids seeing us in a frail, needy condition, it does have to do with that sense of embarrassment or shame, um, the, the internalized ageism, that being old is embarrassing. Um, and so it, it maybe if we recognize that more and think about it more. That's one of the aims of anthropology is to take what's taken for granted and um, just recognize it, see it better, try to understand it better. And that can sometimes help people say, oh, okay, well, I don't have to feel that way totally. Oh, maybe my kids wouldn't think it was that shameful or, or look at me terribly if I was a little more frail. Uh, yeah, so just talking about these things, I think maybe helps us as a society uh, have more expanded visions. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off yeah of course not everyone's lucky enough to have kids to look after them of course not everyone has kids yeah (laughs) not everyone's close to their kids a lot of people choose not to have kids definitely so but it can be friends not everyone has friends either (laughs) Um, but but um you know if there are people in one's lives who one's close to it could be a partner it could be friends, it could be neighbors, it could be kids. A lot of times people really want to help others. It makes them feel good. And so in general, if if someone is feeling like, oh, I can't ask for help, maybe stop, pause, think, well, can I? What's going on with that fear and reluctance? Maybe I can ask for help from someone. Um, and maybe they'll be happy to give it. I, I think we could do more of that in our society. Mm. So 
chapter five, and I, the one about the Mexican men of Viagra that you sort of alluded, that was one of my favorite chapters. But another one was a chapter five, which is called Beyond Independence by Elana Buch. And she tells the stories of elder people and their home care workers in Chicago. So these are people who are receiving home care at home. And it raises the issue of how the system of home care, even while it's offering real solutions to older individuals, prioritizes their well-being over the well-being of the people who are caring for them. Each of them being a pretty vulnerable group of people, really, in society. So I wonder how do we as a society hold up this ideal of independent aging and deal with the fact that, uh, and this is in the words of the book, ideologies of independence may be intrinsically bound up with social inequality. Yeah, such an important question. And Ilana Vuk is a wonderful scholar. And after she wrote this chapter, she published um, a large, longer book on the topic called Inequalities of Aging, Paradoxes of Independence in American Home Care, a wonderful book and where she probes these ideas. And I'd say there's no easy answers to the question of how inequality, social inequality is so tied up with uh, the way Americans often arrange their care in later life. Um, I think an important first step is to recognize that these social inequalities are going on. A second step would be to pay home care workers more and to have more social recognition of their value. Um, and what's going on there partly um, is that because so many Americans are so uncomfortable with receiving care, and they'll say especially uncomfortable with receiving care from their family, let's say a spouse or children especially, or neighbors, etc., cetera, uh, or friends, um, then many of them feel that if they can pay for care on the market, either because they have the funds to do so or because they have some kind of medical insurance that will cover it, that this is uh, different. They're paying for the care, so it's less humiliating to their personhood. Um, it's kind of a market exchange. It's not a personal exchange. So they can maintain uh, their sense of independence, a kind of a successful independent personhood um, through this hired care. And especially if it takes place in home, which Alana uh, focuses on, they're not even in an institution. They're kind of have this sense that they're living independently at home um, and the, the care is paid for. But what she points out that's problematic is that care is often kind of silent and hidden. And that's part of the system. The older person doesn't want to even think that they're using care really, in some ways. Um, and so the care workers are devalued and don't have as much recognition as they should. And for instance, she has uh, fieldwork examples where the home care worker, although they're preparing food for their client, they also might bring in some of their own foods. But the client might think that the care worker's own foods are smelly or smell funny, or they'll you know, throw them out. They don't see the care worker often as, as a full equal person. 
And so that's a, that's a real problem. So books like hers and research like hers help us expose these kinds of inequalities. And again, if you expose something, maybe it helps us kind of see the problems and, and do something differently about it. I do think that paid care is, is here to stay in, in North American society. It really fits in well with people's cultural aspirations. But if we could make it more socially equitable and with better wages for the care workers, that would be a, a really important plus. Yeah, because it's so demanding and the hours for the care workers are really hard and causes them in many instances to basically give up their own life uh, right. and Often their own needs. Not, yeah, exactly. Sorry to interrupt you. Yes, give up their own life and their own needs. Um, you know, it's trying often on their backs. Um, they might have loved ones at home that they're not caring for as much. And um, because the pay is poor, so many people take more than one job, caregiving job. And the majority of elder caregivers in the United States are immigrants. Um, and, um, and uh, you know, not being paid well. Some of them are critical of U.S. society and say, I don't know why these U.S. people, they're weird. You know, why don't they care for their own elders? You know, that, oh, their relatives don't even visit, you know. So some of them are critical of U.S. society, but at the same time, they need the income, they need the work. It's very hard work. Um, yeah, so it, it's just, I, I don't know if that's, if, if those people who are receiving home care, are they considered to be successfully aging? If they're remaining at home, they're living in the community, they're, you know, they're basically not going into institutionalized care. Is that considered successful aging? I think often by themselves, you know, the, the standard mainstream models of successful aging, you also have to, well, Rowan Kahn said, avoid disability and disease. Right. <laughs> and, and also live independently. They said that there's no greater fear among Americans than to not be able to live independently anymore. So if you need to hire help to help you move around, in a way, on the face of it, from the mainstream models, you didn't succeed. But Alana Bjork's research shows how um, that the, through the hired care, they uh, often people can maintain a sense that they did succeed, that they are living independently in their home. Like you said, they don't have to go into an institution. Um, they aren't depending on their family. They're not a burden on their family. So yes, in a way, hiring home care workers is a feature of a sense of successful aging for many North Americans. Yeah, oh, it's interesting. Um, so another idea that emerges through several chapters in the book is the division of old age into third and fourth stages, with the third being the target of active aging policies and behaviors like universities of the third age, and people are you know, still taking on new challenges and what have you. But that just seems to shift the so-called problem of aging onto the fourth age, or the oldest old, as this group is sometimes called people 85 and up. Um, but how does successful aging account for this fourth stage or fourth age when individual efforts is just not enough? Right. Good, important question. So, um critical gerontologists and anthropologists like me, we uh, tend to be uncomfortable with that division, a kind of segregation between th third and fourth age, because um, the third age is the age of active aging, healthy aging. It could be any chronological age. You could be in your third age up to 90 or 100 if you were still active and healthy and so-called successful. Um, 
And that is the age that, you know, you're so-called supposed to be your whole life until you drop dead. People, according to successful healthy aging models, would avoid the fourth age altogether. And the fourth age is, is one where people do experience more debilities. Um, it can be physical incapacities. It could be dementia, which so many um, older Americans are terrified of. Um, and so the fourth age is sort of in the successful aging model. The fourth age is the failed aging and so, but yet it's a reality. People who live long enough, you know, and many people want to live a long time. It's a reality that many people will develop frailties. Um, so but one thing I find kind of heartening and enlightening is that when I actually talk to older people who are what we could say in the fourth age, experiencing various sorts of frailties, they often, their own ideas about what, aging well or successful aging is have often evolved um, to include uh, kind of more realistic and accepting ideas about, um, well, acceptance of change, you know, learning, oh, this is the new phase of life. Some people are religious and say there's a reason for this. I'm learning lessons. Other people are not religious, but still saying, okay, well, this is my phase of life now. Okay, I'm going to make the most of it. Aspire for pleasures within reach. Um, and, uh, you know, if I used to love downhill skiing, I can't do any that anymore, but maybe I could walk slowly in my backyard and watch the snowfall, um, kind of resilience and flexibility and acceptance, which some older people feel like they are better at doing than when they were young, um, that living longer helps you, uh, deal with adversity um, and be more patient with yourself and others. So the, there, there are ways to expand our notion of what successful aging would be or aging well would be to be able to accept more frailties and accept more of the experiences of what some gerontologists call the old uh, fourth age. Yeah. I, I got stuck on the idea of you, you've got to be free of all disability and illness to be successful, successfully aging. I'm thinking of a man I was speaking to today, and we happened to be in this um, gym in a class for people who've had leg injuries. But he told me he's 85, and he he doesn't do that much in the class. But he said that before he had this injury, he and his wife would go dancing. They go dance classes. Uh, he was going off to take the bus away from the hospital. But he's got these different disabilities as well. You know, he's got COPD and, he's, and different things. So where would he rank in successful aging? And he's, he's 85, he said. So someone who's got various chronic disabilities, um, was dancing, maybe can't dance anymore. 85, is, is he successful? Is he not successful? But, yeah. Well, good question. <laughs> I, you know, I don't love the term successful aging myself, so I would uh, – but I could say what, what you described could make me think that he, he could be successful. He sounds uh, kind of happy um, and making the most of his situation from what you described. I guess I, um, it's but hard to know. What, yeah, go on. Just definitely curtailed in his activities. Right. So I guess I would say, uh, you know, my own sense when I'm meeting someone like that or talking with a range of people, if they can feel accepting of themselves, basically, you know, pretty happy 
enough with their self and their life most of the time. To me, that's quite successful. That's all we could all want at any life stage. Um, you know, and there's so many young people. I mean, I think adolescence and young adulthood, um, college years, those of my students often are the most agonized, worried about your body and your body isn't perfect. Um you know, worried about relationships, success, you know, professions, et cetera. I mean, there, there's so many insecurities and problems that people deal with at every life stage, um, but we don't try to lump them into sort of successful, unsuccessful right. <laughs> right, in these various life stages. So it, it'd be better for us to get beyond that with aging as well. Um, but I sort of see if I meet someone and they're happy, relatively happy, I mean, acknowledging that life has its ups and downs, I, I you know, leave that interview thinking, oh, wow, I, good. I met some successful person. doesn't matter if they're lying in their bed or not, um, using a walker or, you know, running marathons. So I, I myself, if I had to come up with some kind of definition, I'd say it had to, uh, I would want to emphasize more um, interpretation, one's own interpretation of how one's life is going and how one's self is doing. And I think that it's easier for people to be accepting of and happy with their condition if it matters matches fairly well or meshes fairly well with what their society has laid out uh, for them is what's a, a good life. Um, so if our society kind of is able to move beyond more this idea that only the successful ager is the one running marathons and having no disability, it will help people accept some disability or frailty as, as part of a, a decent life. So I think, I guess I'm, I'm interested in changing some of the public and popular perceptions about aging, moving it forward to be more embraceive of diversity and frailty and different socioeconomic conditions, et cetera, as, and, and emphasize more like, um, you know, are you happy enough with your condition? Are you accepting this new phase of life and learning from it or growing from it or getting, pursuing the pleasures that are within your reach during this phase of life? Yeah. So getting on to some different perspectives on that, your own research I wanted to talk about, and your own research is focused on India, as you mentioned, uh, a lot of it. And in the last chapter, you contrast the views of older, white, well-educated Bostonians with perspectives from people who are aging in India. And I wonder if you could summarize the differences between them and tell us if aspects from either perspective can allow us to, um, in your own striking words, regard old age and death not as intolerable outrages, but rather as inevitable facets of life, defining in part what it is to be human. Well, yes. Okay. So I do do um, a lot of research in India, I have for 25 years or so. Uh, and I've learned a lot there from talking to people there about their ideas about aging. Um, and then over the past 10 or so years, I've also been doing a lot of research on aging in North America. And it's really interesting to compare the two and to see what each can maybe teach each other. Um, it's hard to generalize because both nations and societies are so diverse. But in general, in India, there is much more acceptance of aging and old age as a normal part of the human life course and human condition. So for instance, uh, well, Hinduism is the majority religion there. There are also a lot of Muslims and Christians, but I've done most of my research with Hindus. And the classical vision of the Hindu uh, stages of life is two of them include what we would call older age. 
So, uh, and, and it can be a named condition. So, uh, you know, there's the, the forest dwelling stage when you start to see the hairs on your head go gray and your kids might be getting married. And then after that, there's this more renouncer stage. Both of them emphasize um, changing, not being quite as involved in, let's say, money-making and material existence and more thinking about um, transitions to dying, maybe developing a spiritual focus, giving away some of your possessions, um, and just um, getting ready for, for, for the next phase, which would be dying and then reincarnation for instance, but not all Hindus even believe in reincarnation. Um, and But even so, even when they don't, uh, there's just much more acceptance that the body changes. People will sell, say to me things like, um, you know, the body decays. I have to accept that. Um, just like rice plants grow and then wither and fade away. Um, that's how the body is. You know, my body's getting old. I'll get a new body if I'm born, um, or anyway, no one can live forever. So why should I mourn that? So much more everyday talk about changes of age. I'd say much less embarrassment about things like needing a cane. Um, and, and community members and family members, if they see someone walking with a cane, more support, politeness, um, respect for those elders. So it's not like aging is perfect in any society, and some people don't get respect there. Um, but I'd say more acceptance of aging, and then definitely within families, more acceptances of the idea that your family members will provide care for you when you're old, and that that's completely normal. And so um, the ideal vision of an of a good old age for um, most Indians I know is that they would be living with family members and younger family members kids or grandkids would would care for them and uh, that that is normal and good um, now of course not everyone has kids and grandkids who do care for them and so often the most sort of so-called failed or tragic aging is is uh, felt to be the, the isolated older person who is independent. Um, so quite different from the U.S. in that regard. Um, now, I would say, so that all sounds kind of maybe realistic and positive, what I just described. Some older Indians are kind of inspired and excited by the ideas, some of the ideas of healthy aging now, successful aging that are traveling around the world, the idea that you can still be really active when you get older. And so especially among the elite in India, there are more senior citizens clubs and activities and outings. Um, this idea that, oh, you could, you maybe should exercise and go take morning walks around the neighborhood and gather with your friends and do things, um, eat well. So these successful aging notions are traveling around the world. And I'd say in India, you know, it's, it's exciting for a lot of people and they're enjoying it. Um, so I guess as an anthropologist, I sort of like to see us all learning about other societies, their approaches to aging and other things and, and kind of for yourself being able to pick and choose what, which, which one, which models inspire you the most. It's easier said than done, but I, I like that vision. Well, uh, so oh, yeah. If, if I could just interrupt for a second, because I the woman, I can't remember her name, that you profiled in that chapter in India, um, and I believe she didn't have any children, but she was about 70, um, and she seemed to be in perfectly good health and all of that, but she kept saying, yeah, I'm, re I'm ready to die because it's my time. I'm old. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. And 
yeah, so I, I can see where it might be a relief in that a society where that's the expectation. I, I've reached this age, it's time for me to die, even though I'm doing well. Right, um, right. Her name, uh, Purnima, one of my um, close friends and what we call interlocutors for many years, um, Exactly. And she didn't have children. She never married. And that was that's the topic of my most recent book was on never married women, which is quite interesting. So, of course, not everyone in India has children. Um, And she was very healthy, but she was she felt very peacefully ready to die when the time was right. It's not like she was throwing herself on the train tracks or anything. (laughs) Um, And and then she did develop. She actually developed ovarian cancer. and she ended up passing away fairly quickly from it and surrounded by a circle of friends. She had been quite active as a volunteer in one of these new senior citizens groups that was actually providing help and care for more frail elders in the community. So she was participating in in some of these so-called new ways of modern aging, more peer-oriented, senior citizen-focused, you can make a community for yourself beyond the family. And and that worked out well for her because then these people were around her bed at the time of death and singing um, songs from Rabindranath Tagore, who is a beloved Bengali uh, poet and musician, songwriter. Um, so she had a very, I guess, positive form of living and dying that fit in with her vision um, and I admired her the way she did seem to approach the changes of aging and dying with equanimity, really, and acceptance. So I, I, I meant to ask, too, what, what about the Bostonians? How did they, what were they like in contrast? Well, interestingly, um, well, for one, if I would tell Bostonians um, about some of the Indian ways of aging, often they were like, oh gosh, I'm glad I don't live there, which kind of surprised me because over years of doing research in India, I had become to think of some of the Indian ways as more so-called normal or familiar to me. Um, and I taught um, a lifelong learning class of, on a few occasions to people living in the Boston area, mostly white, kind of well-to-do people participating in active aging by taking lifelong learning classes. And I would teach them about ideas about aging in different parts of the world. And most of them were like, oh, I'm glad I live here because they really, really liked the idea of independent aging, taking care of yourself. Um, If I said that it's quite common elsewhere to live with your children as you get older, they would kind of laugh often and say, oh, I don't want No, no, would you want to live with your kids? No, 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 never. Um, And so, so, so sort of, pleased that they were born into what they saw as the right society where independence could be the normal way of doing things. So that was quite striking to me. Um, but then uh, some of these people now I've known for many years. And so I've seen them transition into more frailty. And some of them uh, now or later, if I approach them again, ask me to tell them more about how in India, wait, they'll say, you know, tell me a little bit more. Is there more acceptance of frailty there? Um, someone I know needs to use a cane now and didn't used to. And I was telling her about how a cane can be a sign of respect in India and, and the mobility helps you be more mobile. And she was interested in that. Um, and then I do have a few interlocutors from the United States also who have, um, been reading about Buddhist perspectives on aging, which are more similar to Indian perspectives also, where one way of achieving, acceptance of oneself and more enlightenment is to meditate on the transience of all things 
and the fact that nothing lasts forever. Some Buddhists advocate even lying inside coffins to come more to terms with the acceptance of death. And so, you know, we do have globally circulating ideas around the world, um, ideas and philosophies going every which direction. And there are North Americans who, who are really interested in learning personally from, from other perspectives from around the world. Well, um, it's, just, it's just so many thoughts going through my head, but, uh, but we've taken up a lot of your time today, Sarah, but I did want to ask you before we go, uh, what you're working on now, because you've already published another book since this one came out, but what's next? Right. Okay. So I am working on something really related to what we've been talking about. Um, so this book, Successful Aging as a Contemporary Obsession, I edited it, um, wrote parts of it, um, but... Uh, since then, I continued a lot of the research, and so I'm working on a new book that does focus on these notions about healthy aging, uh, successful aging, the idea of uh, aging as a project that the self work the self works on. I'm I'm looking at. Um, North America and India, and and it's just writing more of a standalone book, um, bringing together a lot of that research. And since I wrote Successful Aging as a Contemporary Obsession, since that was published, I continued to do more research in the United States with people, not only white people, but more black people and not Latinx people. And then I also um, did some field work in Arkansas and uh, talked with people from neighboring states as well, which was really interesting because I wanted to go to a, a place in the United States where um, there was more sort of taken for granted religious perspectives. So I know people in the Boston area who are might identify as Christian or Jewish or Muslim, Hindu, but um, the the perspective around here is very secular and cosmopolitan and kind of mixed. And so I wanted to go to a community of the United States where um, almost everyone was Christian and really took for granted a Christian worldview. And so that has been really interesting to me, um, how people's ideas about how God is in control of the lifespan and really, really looking forward to heaven after death, how that is integrated in people's minds with their notions about um, also healthy aging and what you should do yourself to take care of your body. Um, and then I, my research in India over recent years has focused more on how these healthy, successful aging notions are from that originated in the West are circulating within India also and taken up by people of different social classes in different ways. So I guess I'm, yeah, I'm writing a book now that's related to what we've been talking about, but that will um, bring um, to fore some of my newer research in a, in a, very comparative perspective. Yeah. Wow. Well, I really look forward to reading that one and to having you back here on the program to talk about it. Good. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking with you and, um, and, you know, listening to your really interesting questions and your read of the book. Well, and it's been wonderful talking to you. And I just want to remind everyone, the book is called Successful Aging as a Contemporary Obsession, Global Perspectives. Uh, Sarah Lamb is the editor and uh, fascinating reading. And thanks again, Sarah. Thank you.
Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen. Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups. It's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. 